What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining us once again on the show. During the week, we had the good fortune of having Jared O'Shea come down to join us for the podcast. Thanks to Neville Bennett for bringing him down. When we got all the way to the end of the show, we found that for some reason the mixing deck hadn't transferred the sound as expected onto the computer. For some reason, the computer took over and decided to record it itself. So it was showing us that it was recording the show. Unfortunately, it didn't record it the way we would want it to sound. The content is great. The sound's just not up to our expectations. And Pat's convinced it was because he wasn't here. So sit back and relax and enjoy it. Hope you uh, enjoyed it as much as we did and just understand that it's not to the usual sound quality that we'd hope to produce in the show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. My name is Glenn Cook and joined in studio today is not my regular co-host. I'm here with Neville Bennett as Pat Stewart is on location with Bart Bellin still, so he couldn't be here. Welcome, Neville. Welcome, Glenn. Thanks for joining me today, mate. I appreciate you co-hosting the show with me. And my pleasure to step in. Big shoes to fill in Pat's shoes. Well, give a crack. Yeah, I think you'll do fine. Today, it's my great privilege to welcome a world-renowned confirmation judge and training specialist as well, which we've just found out about, Mr. Gerard O'Shea. Thank you very much. Uh, really glad to be here. I'm uh, looking forward to it. It's a uh, first podcast on this level, and I'm, I'm actually excited about the whole process, to be honest. Yeah, no, it's great. I, and Gerard's out here judging the Rottweiler specialty in Sydney. But uh, as I found out, I did a little, we did a breed survey test for the Rottweiler Club. And while I was there, Gerard naturally was judging the show. While I was there, I actually found out that he wears a lot of caps. I picked him for mainly confirmation, but as I said before in the introduction, he's quite knowledgeable, and I mean quite knowledgeable, on training. So hopefully we're going to dig a little bit of that out of you today and find out a bit yeah, more about it. Great, be fun. Yeah. My favourite subject, so why not? Yeah. Well, great. Yeah, okay. So, Gerard, tell us in your own words where it all started, like where you got your well, ambition and drive from. When, when I was a kid, I was dogs crazy. Well, all the other kids in my neighbourhood, I'd come from a working-class area of Dublin, or football mad. I was mad about my dog. I didn't have, um, if you like, a pedigree dog. We didn't have the money for it. I had a, a crossbreed between uh, a German Shepherd and a long-haired Dachshund, believe it or not. Okay. <laughs> and nobody would believe me except for uh, I actually seen it in action. Oh, I would love to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this, uh, this German Shepherd did manage to toy with the standard Dachshund bitch. And uh, he basically pulled around for half an hour. I'm sure they had a fucking great time, but whatever. <laughs> eventually, she had pups. Eventually, she had pups. And my mum uh, decided that it would happen because uh, in those days in Dublin, when you had mixed breeds like that, you had to give them away. A little bit like people having barnyard cats today. You have to give them away, whatever case. So I got this dog called Peppy. And believe it or not, I still say to this day, one of the best dogs I ever had in my life because... Yep. I didn't raise them with um, the sort of formal rules that I even sometimes teach today. 
he was just it was just a kid and his dog if you get my point yeah and I was a little shit of a kid I was always mitching from school which is uh, truancy as your brothers would say yeah mitching and uh, mitching we call him mitching from Dublin it's like uh, yeah he's on the mitch look at him he's on the mitch how do you know he's on the mitch that fucking little black dog is with him that's how he's on the mitch yeah but the dog did something really really strange that I could never explain and I still can't explain it or Maybe in my adulthood, I have a little bit of logic to it, but um, I live in this uh, new suburb of Dublin and this little dog, Peppy. My mum called him Peppy because she said it reminded her of Peppy Le Pew from Eight Days Around the World. Remember? The, yes, the yes, I do. Yeah. yeah. And he was the little assistant that would follow them all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, I went to school in the city and I would, I would take a bus home. And as a child, I took this for granted. But when I got a little bit older, I started questioning it. And what would happen is that I had a choice of two two buses. I would get the 40A or the 40C. And my house was like uh, about a little a little less than a kilometre away from either bus stop. But they were in almost opposite directions. And every day when I would come home, that little shit was at the right bus stop waiting for me. Wow. Every day. Now, when I got older, I kind of figured that maybe... Uh, because they came, the buses uh, sort of circled their suburb in a different direction. That the dog approximately, because we know that animals are quite attuned at recognizing time, time of day, blah, 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 and so forth. Yeah, they're very happy. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So mm-hmm. I reckon that um, the dog somehow or another would probably hear the bus approaching from a certain direction. But when I would get there, the dog would be lying on a grass patch, just 10 meters from the bus stop. I get off and I just call him, he'd run over, jump up play a little, little clap and that was it off home but never give it a second talk mm. but in reality he followed me everywhere absolutely everywhere and uh, I, I can remember oh, I put him through some really tough times because I was a little bit of a I don't know what you would say almost like I suppose in those days kids in Dublin were like a version of Huckleberry Finn everything they did you know running all over the place getting up to mischief never stopped and I can remember one time um but I think that was a sign of the times yeah, too, I think wasn't so. it? I think it must have been the same in Australia. I, I think you never and I are really in that same sort of age bracket. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. you didn't have cell phones. Like yeah, Bart yeah, and I yeah. and Pat were talking about this in the interview the other day, and it's, we didn't have the internet or computers yeah. or trackers to find where we were. Yeah, yeah. And parents have said, when the lights come on, yeah. get home. Yeah. And in between that time, they had no friggin' idea where you were or what you yeah. were doing. So we just made our own fun. Yeah. And we were doing, like you said, Huckleberry Finn describes it well, because we were out on rivers and yeah, throwing stones at each never other stopped, and no. everything that was unsafe and uncanny, you'd do it. One of my favourite pastimes was sound a little bit barbaric that I used to do with this dog on Sundays. We would probably have a roast chicken or whatever, you know, and I'd wait for uh, everything to be finished. And I'd ask my mum if we could have the frame, the frame of the chicken. We'd leg it, leg it is another Dublin term, running basically. We'd leg it down to the river and we used to take fishing line and we'd tie the chicken down with two ten pegs or two sticks, you know. And we'd sit there. And this dog uh, was a bit of a strange looking dog. He was a medium, very robust dog, but he had long hair and he was black and tan. Mm. And we would sit there in the bushes just waiting for the rats to come out because we knew by the river the rats would come out. And we often had, uh, in those days, in Ireland, would be uh, a lot of families would have Jack Russells. I had one or two mates with Jack Russells. We'd just sitting there waiting and waiting, and the rats would come out one at a time, and then they'd come out. And we had to tie down the carcass because they would 
they would literally carry it off, you know. Yep. And they'd, and they'd be fighting over scoreline. And when we knew there was just enough, when we knew there was just enough barbaric little shits we were, we would just let the dogs go. The dogs would explode out. Now, the thing that was amazing, we never trained the dogs to do anything. But them dogs knew to be silent. Mm. I don't, don't ask me how they knew. They knew to be silent. And then we learned that the dogs that were really good with this were the dogs who didn't actually try to kill them and eat them, which every now and again we had friends that had dogs that would grab one rat and they'd run all over the place forever with it. The dog would run out and grab a rat, quick shake, drop it, next one, bam, next one, bam, bam. And the Jack Russells were amazing. But this little guy, because he was, um, of course, half a dachshund, had a lot of hunting in him, really a lot of hunting in him. And we did all types of crazy shit. I mean, I remember rubbing an orchard one time. (laughs) And we were running in orchard, and we were running with our jumpers full of apples. You know, running with the, our jumpers full of apples, and we got to this wall, and the wall was I don't know, maybe six feet around the case. So it was like uh, ten years of age, twelve years of age, whatever. And we're running, we're trying to get over the, the wall and uh, get over the wall. And we seen that the guy who owned the orchard, Slater, we called him Slater's place because he had like a, a Slater's mansion. It would have been an old probably colonial building at the time and, and I don't think he owned it I think it was a caretaker because it was it was almost derelict but probably still owned by the family and Slater would send his German shepherds after us I mean literally send them after kids which if you think about it by today it's not you couldn't get away with it you, <laughs> you got a child for it yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and we were running and we made it to this old stone wall you know and, um, and I knew I wasn't going to make it I knew I wasn't going to make it and we have a word in, in Ireland, if we're going to set our dog on someone, we would say hoose. That was the word we'd use. So without thinking too much about the training, we would do it because it was a, quite a wild area. We'd like 80% unemployment. You had to be a little bit, uh, have a bit of skin on your nose, you know. And we'd, if we were getting hassled from anybody, other dogs, people, anything, we just got pointed at them. Goose and the fucking talk is mint. Like, <laughs> and we've seen these shepherds coming and we knew we weren't going to make it. Now, that is not completely true. I knew I wasn't going to make it with the apples. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this morning, I was running with the dog, poor Pepper, when I think about it, he was tough as nails. And uh, people underestimate Daxons. Daxons have a lot of heart. They have a lot of heart. I turned around and I said to Peppy, who's two German shepherds, and he just legs it back. And he gets into a mill with these two shepherds, whatever the case. Well, we made it over the wall. And then I called him, and he had a little bit stumpy legs, so he would, uh, he was very thick set and very heavy coat, and he would run, and he run up the wall, and all I could do was just grab anywhere on him, like by the ear, by the neck, by the skin, and just pull him over. And the dog would be like, rock and roll, he'd love it. It was like an adventure of a lifetime and all my mates were like whoa what a dog he saved us again or whatever the case so that was my introduction to dog this this little dog and um, but no um, amazing control but no conscious effort yeah which is which is an interesting thing it stayed with me for life actually uh, it stayed with me for life not to chase contact endlessly become a fucking party piece for the dog non-stop as many people are doing today and we experienced it on the weekend. I mean, look how frustrated I was when I was judging this weekend with people trying to attract the dogs and get attention. And I'm like, thinking, without being rude, I'm almost thinking, what are these people doing? I mean, if you chase behavior like that, it's the dog will actually disown you almost. It's, it's going to get worse and won't get any better. You know? So yeah, that's, where it started. Started. that's where it started, that, that little dog, actually. 
Two things on mm. your appraisal of Dachshunds. I think some of the dogs that I've had some pretty serious skirmishes yeah. in days gone by have been the little Dackies. They have got a lot of heart and soul for a little dog. Yeah. I remember there was a, uh, I used to work in a kennel in, in Melbourne and there was a little Dachshund in there called Chico mm. and uh, everybody knew him for all the wrong reasons. He was carrying on one day and one of the girls said, oh, I can't get something out of the kennel. Do you think you can go in it because Chico won't let me in there? And I, I saw him, I walked past him, and being a Rottweiler guy or a Shepherd guy, I walked past him, laughed. And I said, this little guy? And she said, yeah. She said, you got to watch him. And I went to the kennel, opened the door, and no shit, it was like someone handballed a hot dog at me. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And he came sailing through the air and he grabbed me by the shirt and yeah. he shook. And I thought, jeez, if he grabbed me on the gut or anything like yeah, that, yeah, I'd be yeah. in trouble. Yeah. I had a healthy respect for him after that. I really thought, wow, what a what a little yeah. tiny dog with a lot of courage. But the thing is, you kind of, um, I think sometimes nowadays we we have a tendency to generalize dogs and uh, we give like family pets and so forth. And I get all that. I, I really do believe we need social stability in, in many breeds without throwing out their genetical temperament or heritage for temperament completely. But... But if you think about these little Dutchies, think about what, what they had to do. They basically had to go down a dark hole mm. on their own, facing a badger, maybe a fox sometimes, but definitely most likely a badger, go down and uh, these air dogs. I mean, you need a lot of courage to do that. I mean, And bloody badgers are badgers crazy. Are, They're serious animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're Hannibal Lecter's cousins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, badgers are, are, are really, really, really tough. Yeah. And um, so we don't have badgers in Australia, but I know from watching oh, yeah, okay, nature so, shows, yeah, yeah. we don't have them. Yeah. And we've got everything else that kills you. But yeah, I know yeah. that from experience on watching shows, yeah. like hunting guys have said, if you see a badger that coming for you, just run. Yeah. You yeah, know, like yeah. if you can't shoot it, run yeah, because yeah. The, you, it'll. I mean. The, to be fair, I like nature, and I, I never tolerate people harassing. I mean, no, you shouldn't. Even when I when I look at what I did with the rats and all that, I think like, my Jesus, what was I thinking of? You know, because I even think rats have a place. I won't say in society, but in the whole nature concept, they have a place. But um, and I think that uh, but these little when going back to the the tax, that's where I want to tax. I mean, if you think about what they had to do, and it wasn't necessarily uh, that they would go down and kill the badger, but they had to withstand enormous pressure to hold the badger while they would dig him out, you know, mm-hmm. while they would dig him out. Now, if you think about, if you, if you think as a human being or even a man, what was to say to you, okay, Nev, I want you to help me out with something. There's something in this hole in the ground. And I can't reach your arms along with mine. Can you stick your hand in? It's something alive and see if you can write. You wouldn't do it. <laughs> no. You'd be like, no way. But can I see what it is? No, I don't know. It's something down there, but whatever. Put your hand in, but when you feel it, just, it'll be there. And you listen to the hole and you hear, okay, whatever it is, it's alive. Whatever it is actually has, a, um, and already the danger signals start going in your head, you know, and I'm saying, put your hand in. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I wouldn't put my arm in. I'd be like thinking, no way. And I suppose in Australia, nobody would put their hand in. Yeah. We're thinking <laughs> snakes or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but um, I remember that we have, um, we don't have snakes in, in Ireland. As you know, the story of St. Patrick, but uh, never mind. But, <laughs> but the thing is, um, we have, a, when I was a kid, I actually worked down, uh, not worked, sorry, I went on a holiday down in a place called Dunmore East. It was down on the um, on the east coast of Ireland, Wexford, really beautiful place, and they had uh, beautiful beaches. 
And what they had was they had a, every morning we would see maybe one or two conger eels were washed up dead on the shore. Mm-hmm. But the population was was immense, absolutely immense. When we would go down to the harbour in the summer, we could see the baby conger eels, thousands of them in the water, almost like little uh, like little shrimps just swimming around. But the conger eel could be well over two metres long and mm. it's thicker than your toys, you know, really big. But they had this um, um, amazing ability that when you would fish them, you take them out, you chop off the head, but the head, not necessarily alive, but the head would stay functional for hours on end before they would die. And eels are synonymous with this. But I remember when we were a kid, I was uh, hearing about a German tourist that was, um, in Ireland we have, I don't know if you guys have in Australia, but we have particularly big toids. Like when the toid goes out, we have enormous toids. It can be kilometres out before the water comes in. And um, especially on the on the east coast of Ireland. Yeah, I don't yeah. think we get it for kilometres, but I mean, we do get good tides that go out. Yeah, and yeah. You, you've got all the rocks exposed. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And another the coin Queensland, they have that. You can walk out like 300 metres on the sand, but when the tide comes in. Not for kilometres. No, it's probably yeah, yeah. three, 400 metres. It's yeah. just mud, sand, and then, but when it comes back, it's gone. But yeah, not, not kilometres. I mean, I was in Germany uh, two summers ago. We, uh, we were doing some dog shows down there, and. Um, they had the same, we went to this little town, I can't recall the name now, but the seaside town, it was the same. We couldn't see the uh, the sea. We couldn't see it when it went out, it was so far. Wow. And uh, we had a similar concept in Ireland, but on this place in Dunmore East where all the eels were, uh, there was a cliff base. And the cliff almost, I, I can't say I know the name of the rock, but it almost looked like an orange marble, but not marble. It was a very hard base and, and it was quite perforated in areas, you know, and then there was, uh, there was holes that could be like uh, uh, 15, 20 centimetres across or 30 centimetres across. And apparently a German tourist, after walking a long way down this cliff uh, face with the expectation to go back, put his hand into one of these holes, exactly what I said I wouldn't do. And he put his hand in and his arm all the way in and then the conger grabbed his, grabbed his um, uh, hand, his whole hand was in his mouth. Wow. And couldn't couldn't get it to let go. There was no way to cut the rock. There was no way to do anything. And his wife eventually had to leave him uh, because this, the ocean was coming in. Both of them would have drowned, whatever the case, and had to leave him. And I was I remember thinking about this. What a horrific way to die. Yeah. You know, horrific. There was absolutely no way. And most likely that eel would have just let him go when the water was at its right height. And then I think they found the guy a couple of days later. But... Um, so that's, that's the closest we have to snakes, I can say, in Ireland's conger eels. Maybe sounds a bit more scary, but events of that are very rare, I have to say. Well, yeah. I won't go to Ireland and stick my hand into perforated holes. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> not a good idea, not a good idea. But, so you're not living in Ireland now, are you? You're no. actually living in Sweden. No, um, I started my, my, I won't say dog career. When I lived in Ireland, I was basically, um, uh, I started with dogs when I was a teenager. Mm. I always had, um, uh, I always had a kind of a knack for, you say, handling dogs. I was recognised at a young age at being able to handle. I started being able to perform at a quite high level. Uh, a lot of my uh, interaction was uh, and friends were also through the dog game and so forth. At the same time, during this period, I did a lot of um, I did a lot of uh, judo. So I kept fit and I did the dogs and so forth. And then, um, and then. Uh, when I started getting more and more success, I when I got a bit older, I joined the army and um, 
I was full time in the army for nearly fifteen years. And but as my, what what did you do in the army? I was I was mostly in the infantry section. Okay. I was in transport. I was a sniper for many years. I served uh, in a few countries, mainly Middle Eastern countries, and also in Mogadishu, Somalia, and so forth. So it was so it was a uh, um, great experience. So actually. I probably should have stayed in another seven years and got a pension, but it was a, I wanted a change in life, and that's what made me move to Scandinavia. And, and I moved to Scandinavia, and a whole new world opened up for me in dogs because Ireland was very much colonial-based yep. in, in its dog culture. Uh, the whole dog scene, especially the show scene, started from England, and, of course, it, it spread in wings over to Ireland, easy enough. And, um, and even Australia, if you look at the Australian dog show scene, it's colonial-based, even though I think the all-breed scene here is having more and more influence from America in the last few years, or whatever the case, or maybe the last 15 years. And, um, and I had my fixed set of ideas. I, I, I had my mentors growing up, and, and uh, I was already in dogs, we say, almost... Um, uh, almost 20 years before I moved to Scandinavia, before I moved to Sweden. So I was, felt like a kind of a, even though I was still quite young, I was like a veteran already because I had 20 years under my belt. It's only when I got to Scandinavia, I was very lucky that I got a job in a place called FADM, which was a military base, and I got a job through a contact there, helping to train dogs for explosives as a, a, a civilian contractor. And uh, in the beginning, I had very little experience of this, but I, I was learning from, they had a, a program called the Cambodian uh, Mind Dog Program, where they had brought dogs, native dogs from Cambodia, because the European dogs, when they would be trained for mind seeking to go to Cambodia, it wasn't that they weren't effectively trained, but the conditions, the living conditions, especially the climate, uh, the humidity and so forth, was, was literally killing the European dogs. They couldn't handle it. Yep. And myself never talked about this area. I said that the, the number one depletion of drive and motivation is fatigue. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, mm. and some dogs just can't cope with certain climates. And um, so they came up with this program in Sweden that they would bring in uh, Cambodian dogs. And, and they looked, for those of you that uh, have no idea what they look like, they were more or less a street dog. They were like a a crossbreed, but they were street dog. Um, Almost like a wild dog. A, a little bit semi-wild, we could say, because, mm. um, but they looked almost like really bad percentages in many cases, you know? Yeah, they look like dingoes. Yeah, a little yeah. bit like this, yeah. yeah. And, um, and But the, it was very interesting that they tried training them and tried training and trying them, but the trainability was very, very difficult in them. And then we had a meeting one day, and this, of course, sounds uh, quite harsh, but we realised that they were so clever, these dogs, because I think people confuse that. They think if a dog is clever, it's easy to train. And I say the opposite. Mm-hmm. If a dog is clever, you have to be a cleverer trainer, you know. And um, they were so clever, these dogs. So these dogs, their, their, their value for food, because basically in Cambodia or these places where they would be living, they would spend uh, more or less 24-7 or every, every awake moment, they would spend scavenging mm-hmm. or looking for a mate or protecting territory or whatever. And um, uh, so they became expert scavengers. But when they start getting fed in their beautiful military Swedish kennel twice a day for free, the dog was like, yo, I don't have to do anything here. I mean, why do I have to do anything? They were like, you think I'm an idiot? You want me to work all day when you're going to feed me anyway? 
So then they came up with the idea that, look, uh, because they didn't have um, prey drive, for, or rather, you guys know it's called prey drive, but they didn't have ball drive, as many people would call it, in the same sense. So they couldn't train the dogs through the ball because for them, uh, prey was related directly to food rather than prey on its own as an isolated behaviour, if you understand. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And um, uh, it was related directly to food. So we had to go over the food. And then it was only, they only started getting success when they literally stopped feeding them. And basically every behaviour that would lead them closer to the, the end goal, which was uh, seek out explosives and so forth, would uh, would be reinforced through food yeah. because it was a it was a primary drive for the dog. Chasing balls was not a primary drive in any in any sense. And I and these dogs, I won't say that they they didn't have prey drive because I believe that all dogs have an element to prey. But um, I think the the strength of prey in a real sense of a hunt wasn't very strong in them because they they were basically scavengers. So we had to show them ways how to scavenge food from us for behavior. And then the results started to change. Mm. Now, some people I've explained that to thought that uh, the whole process of not feeding them and only feeding them when they did work and so forth was a little bit cruel to dogs. It's funny you say that, Gerard, because actually that's become a more popular way of training dogs. Absolutely. And my analogy of good trainers these days is... I did a video a while ago, and one of those pointers was some of the best dog trainers in the world don't feed the dogs in dog bowls. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you speak to anybody who's really achieving magnificent results, mm. what they're doing is they're saying to the dog, I might give you a retainer amount of food, but all the bonuses are going to be fed through your yeah, work. Yeah. So I'm going to, like Skinner did with all these animals, exactly. he kept them at a certain weight. And he taught them that the only way to get any further or any additional food was to actually start doing work. I really believe it's the best way. Without a doubt. I mean, we're fattening dogs and killing them with obesity now anyway, which is just ridiculous. But it's not only that. I think there's another element is that I have in in my dog management, when I talk about dog management, I I always go, if you like to say, back into the basic genetic psyche of the dog get the customer or the owner, the pet owner, agility person, IPO person, I don't care uh, what your intent with the dog is. Everybody needs some level of dog management. It doesn't matter what it is. 100%. And um, I like the, the, the term dog management because for me, it's kind of a positive term. As soon as you start to say problem dog owner or problem dogs, people reject the idea immediately. But if you say dog management, even a, a successful trainer would be thinking that could be something for me. You know, it could be something in there. And, and one of the things I say to people, which I firmly believe in, is that, and I use a lot of power words to get my point across, I say, all dogs are born with active, aggressive food drive. And what I mean by aggressive is, I don't mean violent in any sense. What I mean, active, aggressive food drive is that they, they are willing to be in active pursuit of food. Now, you meet pet owners and they say, oh, he doesn't really like treats. He doesn't really... When he comes out of the house, he doesn't have... We go to the classes and he doesn't want to take treats off me. And especially the dog's a little bit nervy because the dog is in the lab, so he doesn't want to do it. And he says... And I say, that's because you've taught the dog to take food for granted. Mm. I said, but when a, when a litter is born and there's maybe six to eight, even ten puppies, food is not taken for granted, at least not in a quantity sense. It's a struggle. It's constant competition. Yeah, it's food. a fight. Uh, constant competition. And um, every now and again, any of you breeders out there that would know this... Every now and again, you have um, when the puppies are like a week old and everything seems to be in the right track, you're going to have one puppy that's like 
maybe a little run, not doing quite so well. Now, and then you're going to have another one that looks like fucking Shrek or something. You know, it's like, it's just like, and you pick it up and you go, can this really be the same breed? You know, it's like, it's remarkable. And uh, and, and breeders, uh, as breeders, I mean, all of us to some extent, and, and many of us too much, we interfere too much from the beginning and we start interfering and we and we take Shrek off the, the big tip and, and you literally hear, you know, and he, and he lets go and you look in there's milk running out of his nose and he's like really content and his belly is huge, whatever the case. And then you take the little runt, hoping it'll survive because, of course, as breeders know, the little runt, if you have bad luck, will be the only bitch in the litter. So you have to save her at all costs. You know? So we become a little bit. That's so like, true. Yeah, yeah, it, it's true. It's like, uh, why did you breed this litter? I just want one bitch for the bloodline. Yeah, yeah, you're going to get one bitch and eight males. That's what's going to happen here. And, um, and then we put her on on the, the really good tip that this Shrek puppy has got going, he got the milk flowing on, he put her on and you're helping out there a little bit and squeezing the tip and everything seems to be going well. And then suddenly you see the feet starting to move and it kicks in and she's she's on the move and you put him you put him on the nipple that's literally on the neck because he'll get juice out of anything, you know. <laughs> this way, you know, and you put him on the nipple that's on the neck almost, you know. Then you think, oh, that feels good now. Looks like she's going to make it, this little one. That's good. I really need this. Because the mother, this is the last of my bloodline. And breeders are weird like this. They have this idea that they own the bloodlines. You know, yeah, more, yeah. <laughs> the last of my bloodline. And they always have this idea as well, which is, is, I mean, we are weird. I'm no different. I'm a breeder as well. So I'm happy to say they're weird. But they have this idea that if the bloodline should die out, the breed will lose so much quality. <laughs> as, as, as though, as though it, uh, the breed's success is based on this bitch that you have in your living room. And anyway, but then we relax a little bit and we're looking at the little, uh, the little um, helpless runt of the litter and she's on the big tit and you think, oh, cup of coffee. So you walk out, only two minutes. Basically, it's a little instant coffee. You're a breeder, so you probably have no no money. You're living alone because <laughs> your wife is totally better if you give the dogs more attention than she does, or maybe the husband, or whatever the case. And you feel content, you think, yeah, she's going to make it. Looks like she's going to make it. And then you walk back in with the coffee, the glancing at the puppies, and you're like, what the fuck? You can't believe it. In the time that you've been out for two minutes, Shrek has crawled up <laughs> all the way up, you know, blind as he may be, only at a week old. And he bulldozes his way in. And just before he takes over the tit, he says to his little sister, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, what people don't really understand, and this, I think this is a difficult thing for pet people, is that pet people have to say, oh, my dog loves me and so forth. And I know this is a little bit harsh, and I agree that many of you out there listening would probably think, oh, well, my dog loves me. And I find that's, if you want to believe that that's fair enough, but in reality, I prefer to work on that my dog needs me. And and love for me is a human term because I feel if in order for the dogs to love, they need empathy. We need empathy for love. So I find sometimes the pet people are a little bit blinded that they are in love with their dog. So they, under no circumstances, will they deprive the dog of anything, whether it be food for a period in order to get better behavior or whatever the case. And, and um, I think this unbalance in the relationship where they end up becoming George the butler rather than Tom the dog owner. Yeah. And, and, they, and they service the dog for everything. It's very difficult. Yeah. One of the things I think we do as a fault, and it's, a, it's more predominant now, is that we anthropomorphize our dogs Without incredibly. Mm-hmm. And 
most people recognise that. They actually see it. And you better explain what that means for some people yeah. will actually miss it. Yeah. Humanoise, basically. If, if, yeah. If, yeah, if anyone who's listening doesn't know what anthropomorphisation means, mm-hmm. it means to treat your animal as if it was a human being. Mm-hmm. Or like it's like when we – I don't want to make this a religious debate or anything like that, but it's like when people pray to concrete statues and think mm-hmm. that – it's going to answer their prayers. It's an object of your religion, not the religious yeah, figure yeah, itself. Yeah. So it's the same thing when we're asking dogs to relate to us like human beings do. Mm-hmm. They're very limited in their ability to do so because they lack deductive reasoning in the same capacity mm-hmm. as we do. Yeah. And cognition. They have it to a degree, and we know that. Mm-hmm. Um, they can feel, think, see and experience, yeah, but yeah. not to the degree that we can. They don't have that sense of self the same way a human being does. But, I mean, anthropomorphism, if you think about it, actually, uh, we used to have a pet store, or my ex-wife had a pet store, actually, and in the store we had um, usual things we'd find in a pet store. Rules in pet stores in in Sweden are very rules, so we had no animals, actually, so it was more or less, we say, um, pet suppliers. We sold food, we sold leashes, we sold toys and so forth, you know. And we had um, the majority of the store had all of these squeaky toys and whatever. And then in a small corner of the store, we had a little bit more like professional dog toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, foam balls, I've seen you had foam balls outside and so forth. We had certain cushions, certain tug of war games and so forth. And none of these professional toys have faces on them. But if you look in the pet market, when you go into a store, you'd be amazed how many people, characters. They, they have characters, they pick up a ball and there's a little head that looks like a pig on it with cute eyes. And they buy that believing, oh, Trixie will really love this. Mm. But in reality, Trixie doesn't even know there's a face on it. It has no relation to it. So we, we are victims of this. As people, we are victims of this. I mean, um, I think it was the pedigree pal or chum. I don't know what you guys call it over here. They have um, pedigree. Um, pedigree. Okay. They have a, a, a kind of a, a chewy stick. Apparently, to help clean dogs. Oh, to come. Yeah, yeah. 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 I've never used it, but apparently they have that. And at least in Sweden, and I think in, in Europe, I've seen the advertisement was of a beagle smiling and the teeth were perfect, but they were human teeth. <laughs> <laughs> they, they actually weren't dog teeth at all. And, they, and, and it was like, and they, and they pulled this whole uh, mind game into it because, of course, the dog is not buying the sticks, the human is buying the sticks, and we relate to perfectly white teeth because we're conditioned that way. Mm. And, it is, and I think this is the, the, um, the task of the modern dog trainer. But the modern dog trainer that probably knows better how to handle your dog, especially if you're having a problem relationship and so forth. It's very difficult to get the customer to step outside of where the problems began, which was most likely what I would call the dog management or their basic everyday relationship. And this is a very difficult thing for the dog trainer to do without people feeling that they're being criticized or feeling that they're getting everything wrong. And um, it is a difficult one because people are so emotional about the dogs, you know. And it's Well, I mean, look, we all, anybody who owns a dog loves their dog and they have a relationship with that dog and it's mm-hmm. it's hard not to. It's not, It's. I mean, I've seen some of the hardest men and women I've ever met in my life cry extremely over the loss of their dogs, like just experience such grievances um, mm-hmm. as as if they would losing a loved family member because Absolutely. for them it's it's no different. And me being the same, look, I've, I've got... 
boxes up there with all my old mates in there that went to war with me in security or sat with me at night and stuff like that, and I miss them terribly, you know. But I also celebrate their life as well. So Mm -hmm. I know how deeply people feel. But even so, even so, I still understand that to benefit and service my dog the best way, I need to understand how it functions and work within the realms of how it learns and feels and functions. Without a doubt. I mean, I think that's that's where the, we say a little bit more of a clinical education to be able to somehow or another uh, step back and have a little bit of distance to, mm-hmm. to recognise the behaviours and recognise the problems that potentially can erupt. I mean, look at... What I say to people when, when they're talking to the dogs, you see a lot of people talking to dogs on that. And in reality, the dog may get a certain comfort from it because the dog recognizes that uh, you are feeling good in that moment and therefore you will treat them well. But they're definitely not relating to the language in any, in any clinical sense. And I think the reason why most people talk to the dogs is because it makes them, the person, feel better. And it's, that's the, I think that's the task is to sometimes get people to step back and say, okay, if you just alter some elements of your relationship, then uh, you're going to be, maybe not have these problems. You're not going to have a dog who's having separation anxiety. You're not going to have dogs who are barking constantly, driving your neighbors mad, or through separation anxiety, start ripping the furniture and, and, and so forth. And there's so many issues that you can address like this. Or, like, for example, dog aggression. For me, when I see, uh, because I, I run very many seminars on teaching dogs how to show, but I'm not actually teaching dogs how to show. The base of my seminars would be teaching people how to teach the dogs to perform in the show ring. Mm. So every now and again we get these um, these dogs who are, the show world will often refer to them as natural born show dogs. It's like from day one they come out, and they're ready, they're doing everything super. And then we just choreograph them, teach them to stand, teach them to trot, and we have a superstar. But they're so rare, and they're so rare that it's like you'd be lucky to get one in a lifetime. And then it ends up relying on look. I don't rely on look in this area. What we do is we condition the dog to have a certain state of mind in the ring and to have certain expectations in the ring and try to make as much as we can that there's a mental connection so we can actually trigger that the dog has certain expectations in this area. And when the expectations have been established, uh, and sometimes it's very general, first of all, it could be something really simple like we set up a, a mock ring uh, with some kind of ring band, like a bunting band that you could buy in a hardware store. Mm-hmm. These red and white ones are the case. Long police tape. A little, yeah, a little bit like police tape. And we do this from a very young age. And, and of course, uh, long before this, we've done other things like uh, play ball, teach the dog that treats will come from the hand, uh, mainly teach them also that treats will come to the hand through their name or possibly a formal contact word or whatever the case. And so you're doing a lot of early conditioning. Yeah, early conditioning before yeah. before we get to this. But at a very young age, mm. at a very young age, we start teaching the dogs that, um, okay, your opportunity for reward will increase drastically within this environment. And this environment will become the show ring. So uh, with my own puppy boys, I have like a free class every Wednesday. We meet together. It's very good um, in the sense that we can help people raise the dogs in the right way and no problem ever escalates to a level that that it becomes out of control. But, uh, for those of you that don't know, I have Rockfathers, so we don't want, I don't want to find out that a dog I sold 15 months ago now is becoming 
a menace to anybody. It's better to have fairly regular communication with them and we can kind of steer the direction so that everything is cool. But mm, that's perfect. Back, back to the show ring, when, when we do this with the puppy boards, everybody who comes training for me, they want this, they want to go straight into the choreography. Now the choreography in the show world, as for those of you that are interested in showing, is extremely simple if you think about it. It's basically stand and trot. And then you add that stand and trot into some formations like up and down, triangles, and uh, moving around the ring and so forth. So the technical content in the hobby is extremely simple. But why so many people? I I don't say I, I feel. I would be arrogant to say I know because I have seminars with eight or 9,000 dogs a year all over the world. And I know that where most people fail is that they predominantly put all the energy into the choreography. So from 16-week-old puppies, if they, if they dare to bring a puppy that young, the second they step into the ring, they're already in some ways suggesting that they should stand, yeah. suggesting that they should trot. And never teach the dog to sit. Yeah, yeah. Or, or whatever it may be. But they, sorry, I missed your point. That is actually true. I have met breeders that have told me, never teach a show dog to sit because he has to stand. And I look at them. It's the most ridiculous concept. I know. I look at them. I look at them, and I'll be honest. Nowadays, I look and I just stare and I go, "What the fuck?" Yeah. In my head, I go, "What the fuck?" Because they're paying me, so I have to say, "What the fuck?" I said, "Did you really say that?" And then my brain is like thinking, "I can't believe that anybody actually thinks of that." The less my dog knows, the better he will perform. It's like an old wives' tale in confirmation that just develop legs, and everybody starts to believe it. And I just think. Where did you get this from? Like, where are the origins of this belief yeah, generated? I, I think it's... It doesn't matter the dog already knows how to sit naturally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, knows, knows the job. We're yeah. not teaching them anything. We're just getting to work on your... But you know what people's fear is, is that they're, as they're walking along and they're going to show the dog and the judge, you know, they're doing the show stack, that the, the dog's dog just suddenly going to sit down. down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but they put so much effort into the stand that... If they develop the training and the behaviour right, which I know you don't talk about anyway, yeah, yeah. that the dog will understand, okay, well, it's in my best interest to hold this stand yeah. until released, until yeah. told otherwise, yeah. which all dogs around in IPO and ring sport and all sorts of fields 100% understand it. You yeah. know, when somebody's running along in a field at fast-paced jog and then they say to the dog, stand, and then they're still running off and they yeah. turn back and the dog's frozen like a statue. Absolutely, mm. yeah. It, but there probably is... Um I think there's a, there's a weakness. I know there is a weakness in the show world is that show people, the majority of them don't actually want to train. Mm. It's like as if I won, I won an element of competition, but I don't want to train. I mean, they'll, they'll basically scissors a dog like fucking Edward scissors hands for hours, <laughs> but they won't spend 10 minutes teaching the dog what to expect in the ring. So what actually, what we do to give a really good tip, and this is, I spoke about this through the night, some man, some of the people after the show, what we do is we, we set up a ring, really simple ring, not so big. We say uh, six or seven metres by six or seven metres. And um, and if we're going to use the ball, we'll use the ball. If we're going to use treats, we'll use treats. Uh, but we always, what's important when we use the treats is that uh, it's always something a little bit extra, meatball, really good sausage, liver, whatever the case. If it's a ball, we have to know that the dog has already been preconditioned to loving the ball before we do it. And then we basically walk up to the ring, and when they, if we're using treats, we will literally, with a lot of theatre, if you notice really good dog trainers are good at theatre, mm-hmm. you know, good at theatre. And uh, with a lot of theatre, I will exaggerate the stepping action over the ring, 
and uh, almost like as if it's a miming act, if you understand. Holding the dog back and the dog knows that... Uh, it's all cues. It's all cues, yeah, yeah, holding the dog back. But I'm also creating a little bit of frustration by holding it back. And the second the dog jumps over the ring band, whatever reward I'm going to use, bam, I'll give the reward, bam, I'll give the reward. And then instead of trotting around the ring, I will actually gallop around the ring. Gallop around the ring. So if it was a ball, for example, I would allow the dog to jump over the ring band and the second he, he actually lands on the other side, I don't even wait 10 seconds. When his front feet hit, I will probably give him some kind of a cue or a marker and like, yes, or whatever the case. And then uh, throw the ball on the ground on a string, pulls it, the puppy grabs it. And when the puppy grabs it, there's a, there's a moment of um, inhalation or success or there's a moment of a rush of, adrenaline's probably too strong a word, but there's a rush of of successful feeling in the puppy. So, and for me, this is a very important moment in dog training because when the puppy has got the ball for about 10 to 20 seconds, what you do in that 10 to 20 seconds is going to affect the behavior and the emotion to the ball and the emotion to that environment forever if you do it regular enough. And what we do is when they grab the ball, we gallop around the ring. Like, and many times, uh, people showing off your trophy, showing off your trophy basically, mm. uh, running around and one like, yeah, and the puppy is jumping whatever the case and sometimes I do like a pippy long some skipping action and, and it looks ridiculous a grown man in his 50s doing this but the puppy is <laughs> looking whatever the case and then what we do is we bring the puppy around and then we climb over calmly back over the ring band and then uh, we'll either if it's in my garden I will allow the puppy to carry the ball all the way up to his uh, up to the house or whatever it may be a little bit like an IPO when you get them to run with the rag back to the car or whatever the case where they have this feeling of success and then I'll do the same exercise the next day and the next day and the next day if I can pull 10 days in a row it's super and then within 6 or 7 days if the ball drive is really good on the puppy what will happen is as you're heading down to the ring the puppy will recognise without any clinical thought but they will recognize my probability of success is really high in this environment so now they're pulling you towards the ring and now I've achieved something that some people that have veteran grand champions never achieve and that is I have I've created a foundation that my dog desperately values and wants to be in that environment and once I've established that I've already laid down the foundation to everything else I will lay down in the future. And I will do the same thing also with food because uh, as uh, people who are, especially all breeds people who show in, um, we say kennel club style shows, they most likely won't use a ball. They will use a treat and so forth. When I use my treats, I have a kind of a, for those of you that know me, I have a finger flick. It's a little bit like a, a visual clicker. So for example, when I go, you can imagine how the clicker is, but this is a visual sign with the same melody. So when I flick out and in with my index finger and thumb, it's a little bit like, and it's that rhythm in and out. And we teach the dog to actually look at the hand. And when that, uh, when you flick out the finger, almost like, imagine if you're in traffic picking your nose and you need to get rid of it. You need to <laughs> flick it away. Okay, yeah, yeah. So you need that kind of tempo, that gusto of your finger. Yeah, yeah. And then the next time you go, shit, I need to open the window the next time. Okay. <laughs> but the thing is, anyway, the thing is, you flick out your finger and back in immediately and you reward the dog with a little treat in one go. And most dogs get it within... 20 flicks with your finger yeah and then suddenly your finger starts to become a signal but even better than that 
Uh, and I understand that maybe show people won't all get this. Your hand becomes a target. And when you have it, your hand becomes a target that gives information. Suddenly you're able to steer the dog with your hand like a lure almost, giving it information with every time you flick, telling the dog when it's correct and when it's not correct. And then it's not long before you have a dog being easily lured into better choreography without being conscious of the choreography. And then you have a dog moving, maybe moving his back legs, front legs, left, right, and so forth. And it's a super method of teaching dogs to perform without feeling any pressure mm-hmm. whatsoever. And it's these type of techniques that, that I do from the beginning. But for many weeks with my own dogs, I, I create this environment of, you are successful in this environment. You are successful in this environment. This is higher probability of the reward base that you value and so forth. And because we see huge amounts of show dogs, for example, if you go to an all-breed show, it's not unusual that you see dogs who relish the thought of getting out of the ring and back to their cage rather than the opposite way around. Our dogs are the dogs that we use for this, if you like to say, flicker system, or it's probably more accurately described as a target system. They're the opposite. They see getting into the ring as an opportunity rather than the reverse, that into the ring is pressure because... um, a lot of show people, they do a system, which Australians would understand as well, called stacking, where you're placing every leg and you're consistently placing every leg. And, and I'm always amazed at how many people have like four-year-old dogs that are still placing the legs who are otherwise quite well built. And I can explain this really easy. Do either of you guys know um, the concept command on behavior? Yes. yes. Which means when a dog gives you a behavior voluntary, not even consciously, it just happens when he happens to sit himself. Yeah. And then if you are attuned to the dog, it could be in your kitchen, and when your dog sits, as it's sitting, you just say, sit. Yeah. We and call it capturing. You're capturing. Okay, yeah. yeah. I call it command and behavior, yeah. whatever the case. So your command or your cue, as a lot of modern trainers like to use, so as the puppy sits down, you will say, sit. And you do this over a period of weeks. And you don't do it when you need it. You do it when he volunteers it. And very, very soon the puppy makes the connection in his head. Some people also classify that as shaping, uh, free shaping. Free shaping, Free shaping, But I don't reward after it. Yeah. Because I I have this idea. I don't know if if you've thought about this before. When I speak about the reward base, I always say to people that, okay, we condition rewards. Like if if a dog is hungry, we make the dog, uh, that the dogs most likely will favor food because he's he's actively hungry we condition the ball to chase the ball so therefore the dog is preconditioned to to hunting the ball for example now but in most uh, other settings when i think about dog training i always say okay so i often ask my pupils so what is a reward if you think reward what is a reward and for me the answer i often give them is because some people will start giving you a list of things and for me the answer is more like um a reward is whatever the dog wants in that moment. Perfectly summarised, and that's what we say too. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was just giving Gerard the thumbs up then because that's what we say on the yeah, ATF course. And what the dog wants at that time. In that moment, yeah. in that exact moment. And this is why sometimes puppy classes can be very difficult because if you go to a puppy class and you haven't preconditioned the puppy to understand that rewards go through you, then your puppy's just going to leak out on every puppy because probably what he wants at that moment is not what you have in your pocket. It's not the ball that you have. It's this opportunity to play with that little cocker spaniel there that he's never met before. Mm. But then they recognize really rapidly that you don't have any power over the opportunity of this. You don't. You have no control 
over and we get to see that puppy because at many puppy class we're constantly telling people take your puppies away from one another which I would do the same don't misunderstand me I don't want them hooked on it but people always think that the reward has to be there's always something that we decide to give it yeah. but you have to control what they want by various means it can be getting out of the yeah. area a drink of water whatever, 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 it, whatever it is so my point is this that when we're teaching dogs for example especially in domestic settings where we're not actually doing high performance dressage when you want the dog to go lay down when your dog chooses a corner to go lay down and he's on his way over you see that little circle they do or maybe scratch the floor what the dog wants in that moment is to lie down so you could in a domestic setting as you see him turning around if you observe as he's going down you could just say bed and then maybe the next day same thing again bed or sit or lie down or whatever you choose to do if he's sitting every time you sit you say sit because if he volunteers to sit something in his brain tells him I want to sit in this moment I want to lie down in this moment so that becomes his reward But it, and if you join it to that the dog will make the connection to the word I and like the feel good yeah. and the feel good of that moment and yeah. it really I like works. where you're going with this it's, yeah. it's intelligent yeah. design so, so what, it, what, it is, what it actually is is that the, it becomes a very simple way for people who are open and observant to train their dogs of the behaviours the dog is freely showing in their domestic setting it's very very easy to do mm. of course it's not easy for people who buy the dog and spend all the time glued to the computer you have to be a little bit observant but I like the fact that it's um, there's no compulsion involved you don't even need treats in your hand if your dog wants to lie down that's his reward if you make that connection to bed or down or whatever word you choose preferably single word you choose to use it's way 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 easier way way easier and after a while the dog will connect it and then when you need it to happen six months down the road a year down the road whatever it may be when you say bed you're going to trigger an emotion in that dog that you have conditioned by his voluntary action and being cured with that command on behaviour yeah it's almost a classical response at the same time absolutely absolutely and it's completely effective and what I love about it is it doesn't require any extra time Mm. it doesn't require we say oh but my timing is off just say it when it's happening and your timing can't be off and as long as you're observing so I really like the concept but uh, back to the the show dogs I have this can I just say something on that absolutely one thing that I paid attention to when I was with you the other day at the show when we were doing the breed survey was the fact that when the dogs came out to do the display Mm -hmm. like we were generating a, um, a response from the dog yeah. because what I'm running at basically what I'm doing so I'll just let everyone know what I'm doing is I'm wearing a sleeve and I've got a, a, a padded stick in my hand I'm running out from behind a, a hide and running in a zigzag pattern towards the dog so basically I'm generating a bit of prey but I'm also ultimately putting threat on the dog threat so what we're looking for is how does the dog respond to the threat does the dog run and hide behind the handler or does the dog come forward and show a guarding response which the rottweiler is is known for but what gerard said to the handlers which i haven't heard a judge say before and i I haven't been to every show so i'm not going to say i've never no judge has ever said before but you're the first one i've heard say it gerard said when we're doing this test when we're finished, what I want the dog to do is return to neutrality. So I want to actually get the dog to leave the field the same way it entered the field. So it doesn't leave all worked up and all bent out of shape because some guy with an arm and a stick just threatened it, threatened it and ran out. 
So, well, yeah. I think we have a duty for that, actually, because, I mean, around the world, in Scandinavia, where I come from, we have huge amounts of tests, especially for working breeds, because um, we're basically looking for um, reaction and recovery. That's, that's what we're looking for. And some people who are a little bit naive of this, they're afraid of the reaction. But a strong reaction and a quick recovery often make the best working dogs in the long run especially if they can show a high sense of curiosity because curiosity is very trainable. Mm. But in some of these tests that last much longer than the tests we did um, last weekend, it's more psychological. There is a high sound volume, there's social testing, there's there's a palpitating by a stranger and so forth, there's tug of war with a stranger. And what happens is, is there's gunshots, as is very traditional in the dog world. What happens is that the, the pressure escalates because the, the recovery between each exercise, it doesn't get less and less, but the dog is never quite fully recovered before the next level of pressure comes in and the next level of pressure. Now, when I say pressure, basically we're looking at the psyche of the dog and see how he handles pressure. Because as we all know, in a modern society, pressure can come out of pretty mundane situations. I mean, you can have pressure if you go on public transport, for example. And um, uh, but. One of the things I do really appreciate, and I've learned this from the Scandinavians, and, and I've taken on board if I'm looking at dogs doing like this test that we did here, is that we have a duty to the dog and the dog owner. If we feel that this test is valid, if we feel that this test plays an importance for our breed and for the maybe help the dog owner to understand, is that the dog is not scared mentally in any way because of the pressure. Mm. So I took a lot of time. There was, if I remember correctly, there was one female that had great difficulty dropping you, if you remember. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and and what we have to be responsible for is that we don't want the dog to actually leave the field with a lasting impression that is false. And that impression could be a man with a beard, in this case, this guy has, well, I don't know what to call it really, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it is a room full of bearded men. It's, it's, it's like it's, you call a yeah, business beard. It's, it's an attempt of a beard. <laughs> <laughs> just say, yeah. Anyway, a man with a beard, or you were wearing a baseball cap, or whatever the case. Uh, um, I mean, the, the scratch pants basically look like dungarees. We don't know what the dog is going to mark in that moment. Yeah. So it's really important that the dog comes back to neutrality. And if I can, I... I even like the dog to go up and make some kind of a contact, and that the dog feels a sense of as you guys will understand without me going into too many words. <sighs> Relief. Mm. Yes, that wasn't too bad. And then the owner says the name. The dog voluntarily takes the contact with the owner because he can relax. And then the owner calmly leaves the field. And I think this, I think when we're testing dogs in different areas, we have a duty of this. Mm. And um, it's something that, for me, is almost more important than the test itself, especially because it's we that place the value on the test, not the dog. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's interesting because when I first got involved in this, the, the shutdown or the, or the calm down of the dog was a very important part of the tenement test. Yeah. And over the years, I've seen them just walk off and the dog's still in high drive, still pumped up, and the guy's been dragged out, the little person been yeah, dragged yeah. out of the ring, and the dog doesn't get to wind down, and then they might go and get a tug or something outside the ring to give it a chance just to relieve itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's important that we bring Can you go into more detail on relieving? Never mind. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an important point in what you're speaking about before, Gerard, too, and touching on what you just said then, Neville, is that when you were talking earlier about dogs going into the show ring, a lot of times when the, the dog enters the show ring, there's, like you said, there's a lot of pushing and prodding, but there's also, in well, 
certain working dogs and some individual dogs mm. where they experience a lot of aversives. When they go in the ring, they're told off, they're corrected and pulled around because they're barking at another dog that's in the ring or trying mm. to get up the ass of another dog that's in the ring. So the dog feels pressure and discontent being mm. in the ring. And then when they get out of the ring, as you said, they run back. Relief. Their relief and mm. they're rewarded for it yeah. because they get the water in the crate, they get all the toys put in the crate, they get fussed over when they're in the crate, and that's where all the special attention happens. I mean, even here in Australia, getting in the, the crate is definitely relief because a lot of you guys have fans on the dogs, which, of course, I agree you with. You have to, yeah. I agree with. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But the dog doesn't place logic on the ring will be adjoining to the crate. No, yeah. he just sees them as two separate moments. Out of the ring feels better than in the ring. Yeah. But we could come back to this point that I think is one of the most common problems when we say the average handler or show person trains the dogs would be where I tried to explain earlier about this concept of command on behavior. It's very typical that many uh, people when they're teaching the dog, especially in the stack, the stand, that they will join a word to it. And the word could be stand, could be steady. It could be whatever. It could be, we say, we take one example, we say stand, mm. okay? And they get their young dog and they sack him, they hold around the head area, maybe some breeds they even hold the tail, whatever the case. And then they'll kind of prompt the dog up or even lift the dog up with the ass and so forth. And many people still do this. And then they will say at that moment, stand. Now, the dog doesn't understand the word whatsoever. So after about three to five seconds with a young dog, it will move. And as it's moving, you will say, stand. And then three or four seconds goes past, and then it moves again, and you say, stand. And then it goes again, and you say, stand. Now, what a lot of people will do after three, because I have done studies of this, of being professional doing this, the psychology of training performance show dogs for many years, so normally after they said stand three or four times, they will then follow up with either no or a little shake, like I told you not to do that, yeah. whatever. Now, what they don't realize they're doing is that they are marking the behavior of movement with the word stand. Mm. So when we come back to command on behavior, what stand really means is move, move. Yeah. move. Yeah. So in our head, we have this idea that because we understand the word stand, that if we, if we keep saying it over and over again, that the dog will get it. But the dog, this is why many of these dogs at three and four years of age, their legs are still repeatedly being moved into position because they actually don't teach the dog to understand what we are asking them to do. We keep marking when they get it wrong rather than taking the time to mark it when they get it right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's for me, it's amazing that general show people haven't figured this out that this is a basic concept in dog training that because if you think especially if you're looking for a singular moment you're looking for something singular for the dog to do like in this case they want the dog to stand still if you spend all your energy marking everything the dog gets wrong that list will go on forever the problem there Gerard and Nev I think this is just this is one man's opinion mm -hmm. is that they're too hung up on winning and the pressure of the judge walking around them than thinking about behaviour. It's always been a, a questionable thing in my mind that you, were, you touched on it before when you were talking about the efforts people go to get to shows. Mm. Like they will travel across the country. Yeah, they will buy, hands, yes, example, yeah. yes, they will buy a car, a trailer. 
they will buy a gear, house a house to suit their dog, a car to suit the dog, trailer to suit the dog, house to suit the dog, crates, toys, leads, combs. They, they have holidays around their dogs. They disregard birthdays. Change wives. Change wives, <laughs> husbands, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, change husbands, they, whatever, yeah. Everything. Yeah, yeah. They, they completely... Change sexual orientation, for God's sake. There is no limit to it. But everything will change for the sake of getting to the show. Yeah. And, like, I've said to the, some of these people before who've come to me and said, I need help with my dog on its behaviour. And I'll say, when can I see you? Oh, you can come out on, let's say, a Wednesday night. Oh, no, I can't do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I've got this, that and the other on. But if it was a dog show, they'd run over the top of you in their car yeah. with their trailer on the back exactly. if you were standing in the road to get to the show. Absolutely. And yeah, it's yeah. just, it's questionable. But to be fair, do we, I mean, okay, it sounds like we're beating the shit out of dog no, show no. people, but in reality, There's in reality, good dog show yeah, yeah, of course there is, there good is. people everywhere, but but in reality, what it is, is is the, I see that the, the culture, the traditional culture of how we prepare them mentally for the ring is dated. Yeah. It's, it's like, I can say like this, basically how they train dogs in a very basic form to show in the 50s and I'm talking about the, the last century, by the way, <laughs> in the 50s. In the 50s, is basically the same philosophy that people are doing today. But if you look in, in other dog sports, everything from modern obedience to, I mean, let's face it, look at how good some of these agility girls are. Look at how fantastic some of the people who dance with dogs are. I mean, people say to me, I look at them people dance with dogs like they're idiots. That takes skill to do that. That is not an easy task. I mean, their choreography is consistently changing all the time. It's not like it's a fixed choreography. But the problem is that the dog show people are trapped in a culture. And for some reason, very few people take the time to think, could this culture possibly need changing? And it was only when I started working with professional dogs, the military dogs, when I started doing training IPO, when my puppy boys started doing more high-level obedience and so forth, and I started looking into this more that I suddenly looked over my left shoulder at the world that came from of show dogs in our windows. Oh my God, we are super dated here that we have to take the philosophies of modern training and just put them into the show world and put them in because our choreography is incredibly simple. I mean, I say to people on a seminar, people pay good money to come on a seminar for me. And I say, look, it, I hope you didn't pay for me to teach a dog to stand and trot. If you did, you seriously have problems because anybody can teach a dog to stand and trot. Mm. But to teach a dog to perform in the choreography takes more knowledge of understanding dogs. And then there's another thing. It's the same with obedience, old style obedience. If you went to an obedience trainer today and you said to an obedience trainer, I want to do obedience. And the trainer says, okay, we're going to start off really simple. We're going to start with the sit, just say, for example which I know a modern trainer wouldn't start there, but we say he said it's going to start. And the trainer said, okay, follow my lead on this. And he took his right hand down and took your Labrador puppy or whatever, your German Shepherd puppy, by the collar with the right hand, and then took his left hand and he says, and look at my left hand, and the left hand went over the dog's croup. And then he pulled up the collar and at the same time pressed down on the croup. So there was a conflict between two of them and pressed down and pulled up even harder, even harder. And just when the dog's back legs gave in, said, sit. You'd look at the trainer and think, well, I won't be fucking coming back next week. Now, we would see that as absolute prehistoric training. My point is this. 
instead of shaping the dog to sit, instead of teaching the dog to sit, we are forcing it. You'd be amazed how many people do exactly the same thing when they're teaching the stand in the show ring. Yeah. What they do is they lift the ass of the dog up into the stand. Dogs are perfectly capable of standing. Dogs are perfectly capable of sitting. But in reality, what happens is that we don't take the time to give them the opportunity to see yeah. the value in what we want to teach them. Yeah. And that's where it has gone wrong very much in the show ring. So one of the uh, one of the things, Gerard, that I learned uh, in the early days in regards to talking about training was when we used to tell a dog to heal, we'd give the command and then shortly after we'd correct the dog. And that was the early way of doing dog training. Mm. Now, I couldn't believe, looking back on that now, I can't believe that that's the way I learned to train dogs. And when we were in the kitchen before having coffee and I was talking about the Mayor Angelou quote, do the best you can until you know better, and when you know better, do better. Mm-hmm. Well, that's my favourite quote. Everyone on the podcast knows that. I've said that many times before. So we learned a way. Now, looking back on it, I know it was the wrong way. And Absolutely. So that's the evolution of intelligent learning is that you look at things and you start to realise how uh, cause and effect of uh, how it happens and why it happens mm-hmm. and how you're affecting behaviour overall. Now, I didn't realise back then, but healing to many of the dogs that we were training was completely aversive. You said that word, they were, it was operant conditioning that you're going to get a pounding with a correction. They were already in a state of alarm. Of course they were. Yeah, Heal yeah. meant you're, you're going to cop it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. But uh, I think it's, it's, what I'm saying is that I think a lot of show people today, as simple as the technical element is of show dog training, although it's very easy, they're still in the old world of thinking. That's what my point is. They spend more time correcting than teaching. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that the correction is brutal. I'm not saying it's brutal. No, I have seen brutality, absolutely. But that is getting less and less because I think even show people have probably read books like Don't Shoot the Dog and so forth. But they're a little bit trapped in this subculture of showing. So it becomes a little bit of a meh, a sheep concept that we just follow those who went before us. And although I'm a great believer in mentors and listening to older people and people who have if you like to say, paved the way in some ways. But there has to be a progression in development. There has to keep moving forward. And if you look at the strides we have made in the ability to communicate with dogs through learning and shaping techniques, not nearly enough of it is being accomplished in the ring. Because when it comes to performance, I have some very strange, not rather, for me it's not strange, but... For traditional show people, they would find it very, very strange. I tried to explain this the other night when we had the, um, uh, the Ruffalo group. I said, one thing I never teach a dog. When I want the dog to stand, I never teach him to stand. Instead, I teach him when to move. Mm. Now, it takes a while for people to process that and to think it. So what do you mean by that? I said, instead, with this flick signal that I explained earlier, I teach him when to move. And then people take a little moment to think about it. And then I said, so, so think about it just a little bit. What will the dog most likely be doing when he's waiting to move? He will be standing. standing. Mm. So, so in reality, the focus is not on don't move. The focus is on when to move. Yeah. Now, for me, the parallel for this, I got the idea, or the parallel for this for me was, was very simple. I looked at uh, in IPO, we have an exercise where we have a down stay where the dog is left for a long period of time. And uh, for those who show people that don't know IPO, it's a, a sport which involves 
very high level of obedience, uh, uh, protection, search, and tracking. So it's a, it's a very rounded sport for, for, um, for any dog to achieve, actually, not any dog trainer. And you need to have an understanding of dog training to achieve a high level in this, absolutely. But we have two exercises that involve the down. One of them is a down stay, and the other exercise is a down and a recall. Now, the state of mind has to be completely different in both of them. So when you teach a dog down stay, and basically the dog is told not to move until you come back, then the dog's state of mind will be don't move, don't move, don't move. And the dog will, many dogs will even relax totally, put their head onto the grass. Some of the really highly trained dogs, they chill out. They actually take a, a little zen moment for themselves, knowing that nothing's going to happen until the owner comes back, especially if the dog is mentally stable. Now, in the down recall, you ask the dog to go down and the dog will go down rapidly. And when the dog goes down rapidly, the owner uh, will create a distance and turn around and do a recall. Now, although the dog is in a down position, the down is completely different because he's in a moment of readiness. And now he's completely in the same choreography as the down stay, but in a totally different frame of mind because now we're teaching the dog when to move. Mm. And what ends up happening is that if you look at the, the down stay compared to the down recall, the down recall is like a sphinx. All the legs are underneath him. His ears are popped forward. Many dogs, even in hot temperature, just for the moment that they're going to run, will even stop panting because the focus is so alert and the intensity is so, is so great. But well-trained dogs don't move a muscle until the command is given. And when the command is given, bam, the dog is on the move. I heard you talking to the guys at the club on Monday. Yeah when you were talking about even the mental preparedness of the dog closing its mouth, like even that snapping its jaw. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This moment where we the dog kind of goes into a channel of expectation mm. and, if you like to say, has the ability to disregard irrelevant information that's surrounding it. Now, if you think about that moment, just think of the down only as a choreography. Don't think about the complications of a revenue. It's just a choreographed moment. The stand is also only a choreographed moment with maybe a little bit of flair. So I have this uh, strong not strong belief, I've seen it for a fact that I've had thousands of customers, where we teach the dog to stand without pressuring the dog to ever stand still. We teach the dog when to move forward, when to move forward. And eventually we extend that period of when to move to be a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. But finally you have the dog standing really well for a quite a long period of time. But mentally the dog is all the time poised when to move forward. And what this does uh, to the show dog, in fact, is that the dog is in the game emotionally, but more importantly, suddenly you start getting courage. Suddenly you start getting more alertness. Suddenly you start getting, if you like, what the show would like to say, more charisma or that star factor of the case. Because the dog is not pressured into not moving. In fact, the dog is cued to get ready to move and you get a totally different a totally different story with that. Another thing I tell my customers to do is to take away commands, verbal commands. Because if you're in a sport where you're allowed to give a double command, like stand, 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 through pressure, through the competition pressure, we are going to repeat that word again and again and again. And every time we repeat it, we'll mostly repeat it when we're failing, resulting that it's related to failure, a little bit like command and behavior. Where I prefer to use a hand cue for the dog to stand and the hand cue only comes in once 
But in the beginning, we only asked about the stand for a split second and then release forward. They're great observations, Gerard. Yeah, they simple really things, are. really yeah, simple no, stuff. That's, that's yeah. really switched on stuff. And I look, to be honest, I hope that the people that you've been educating, especially here in Australia, because we don't have a lot of access to judges like you, mm-hmm. but I hope that when they heard you talking about that, if you mentioned things like that during the, the specialty shows, that they are taking things like that on board because that is golden information. The problem is that uh, sometimes as a judge, even at specialty shows where you can have open critique in which people value and so forth, there isn't the time to explain this, yeah. the, the philosophy behind it, yep. the psychology, how the dog takes the information. Uh, so, unfortunately, it nearly needs to be a separate event. Well, it does actually need to be a separate event. Well, just in talking to you again in the kitchen before we started the podcast, I think what I would like to propose at some stage is rather than bring you out to judge a show, I think it would be great to bring you out to talk about the behaviour of how to set your dog up for better success. Absolutely. Um, I think that would be... I would love it. I think it's, I, it's my job. I mean, why not? Yeah, I think it would be really good. I think if people aren't, especially in show world, Groups, if they're not taking advantage of things like that, they've got rocks in their head. Yeah, we're having this chat away over exactly the same conversation you have right now. Gerard and I are having this on the way to Gerard every day. Yeah. But, um, one of the things that Gerard was going to sort me all day, and, and what he's alluding to just a moment ago on how that dog comes in, event, the dog ends up owning the ring. Yeah. The, Absolutely. The judge looks at the dog, and the judge, as he walks away, continues to look at the dog. And it creates an impression, doesn't, doesn't it? To the next dog, so he's actually right back, and he even glances back again because. The dog, whether it be anatomically correct or not, the dog just owns the ring. It stands there. It just shines in the ring. I, I heard Gerard say when you were watching one of the dogs for the breed survey, when you were doing the measurements and watching the dog stack, mm-hmm. you said to the handler, "Why didn't I, I wish your dog stack like that for me during the show like it has today? Yeah, well, what happened was in the, in the breed assessment, when we're doing a critique, it's, it's way longer critique, and um, the dog will have to stand... For me to assess the dog for a much longer period of time mm. but but because there wasn't an element of competition it's basically a description of the dog the owner is more relaxed and i told the owner okay just back off don't do so much just back off and just show her that you have something that she values like a, in this case it was a ball and don't say so much and the owner was calmer and so forth now in the competition the owner is totally the opposite the owner is hysterical chasing behavior chasing behavior <laughs> all the time and every time the dog gets something wrong the ball comes alive resulting that the dog realizes well actually if I don't focus the ball gets more exciting and so forth so it becomes the wrong type of action reaction in relation to the learning king but there's something I'd like to put out there just just for a moment actually for even for people who may never have the opportunity or will to, to train for me at any point is that a really good tip I say to people when it comes to training dogs no matter whether it be simple choreography like the show field or complicated choreography like uh, we say modern obedience or whatever the case is that the state of mind is key to everything so a little bit like you were saying Neville about the dog feels king if the dog feels good in that environment he he learns to with his confidence comes attraction to the person who's looking at him and what actually happens is with, with the dog's confidence the dog starts to grow but the dog can't grow if he doesn't basically feel good. Yeah. Now, if you think of two, if you think of uh, two scenarios, if you have a dog that doesn't feel good, and it doesn't matter why, first time away from home, first time away from his pack, his usual uh, uh, domestic pack, 
first time in a new environment or other case, and the dog is a little bit skeptical, a little bit on the edge. If you teach the dog, try to teach a choreographed moment, whether it be a sit, whether it be a down, whether it be a stand, like in show dogs, when the dog is in that negative state of mind, you emotionally connect the dog to that choreography. And this is what a lot of show people do is, and they persist on teaching the dog to stand when the dog is not fully engaged in being there. And they do it over and over again. And then maybe six months down the line, the dog actually becomes accustomed to that environment, that show ring, and he's not so pressed about it anymore. He doesn't feel stressed about it. But the second you start doing the choreography, it's like a flashback to the pressure he felt. They don't have this ability to say, well, I was really worried about the hall. They just... It, they just connect that in the moment of choreography I was worried when it was being taught this is why for me this feel good in the ring is very important so that when the dog goes into the ring we have him chasing balls we have him free candies we are running skipping and hopping and the dog loves being in the ring and when he has that state of I love this environment now it's time to start introducing a little bit of order because now he's in a positive state of mind even better he's in a high expectation that something positive will happen. So even if you make a little bit of a mistake and you do something a little bit negative, you have a high possibility that the dog will recover and not be affected by it simply because the dog was already in such a positive state of mind. And I think so many people miss the value of the state of mind when it comes to the early introduction to training. Mm. There's a, a regular listeners are going to, as soon as I say this, they're going to go, oh, here he goes again. But, um, <laughs> but we all know there, who he goes again. <laughs> there, there was a um, very respected doctor that came out here and did a seminar, Dr. Esther Schulk, and she summarized it beautifully. I've, I've heard her lecture a few times. Every time I hear her talk, she's over in, in Europe. I think they're in, in um, northern Germany. She summarized it very well by saying, it doesn't matter what you think and feels, it matters what the dog thinks and Absolutely. feels. Absolutely. And you've paralleled what she's yeah. saying by, by uh, echoing that same sentiment, yes. which I think is so important and it's so missed, incredibly missed, because people are so overwhelmed with how they feel mm-hmm. and they think if I feel a certain way, then it's it's reflected in my dog. Okay, we, we could look at it a little bit another way. If you go to a training class, no matter what it is, no matter what your planned hobby or expectations is, when you go to the class, just simply entering going to a class, you have already preconditioned yourself to an expectation. Correct. The problem is that we can't be sure that the dog has also a positive expectation. So you are already preconditioned to the expectation and you go there. If you stay uh, introverted and only focus on what you feel, you can easily miss how the dog feels. So once you says, I want this, I want to train my dog, these exercises, whatever it may be, then your first goal could be, okay, how am I going to get my partner? Fido with four legs to be as game as me and that is your first goal mm. instead of saying okay now you're going to do what I want you to do how are we going to get at that Fido is as game as me and when he's as game as you then both of you are preconditioned to a positive expectation that you will then choreograph later and it's exactly the same it's exactly the same thing because people don't get the fact that when you enter when you decide to go on the course when you pay you were already motivated. Otherwise, yep. you wouldn't have done it. That's right. So your job has to be to bring the motivation up to the dog, to of the dog to be as high as you with, of course, other goals in the dog sense. Mm-hmm. But it's the same thing. And it's, I think people, I don't think, be, I wouldn't say that people are dumb or people probably a little bit uneducated and 
probably never took the time to think about it. That's really about it. Really. Well, they don't understand it. And part of the culture of owning a dog is that, like, we've been – there's generations of advice that have been given to people, and that's the problem is that they don't know better and they're using the advice of what they've had during that time. So until someone comes along and actually points it out to them, sometimes it's very obvious to people when it's actually shown to you. When the knowledge is handed to you, you go, of course – now I can perfectly see. But until that time, you're sort of stuck in this feedback loop of mm. repeating the same behaviour over and over again, which is the the definition of insanity, is doing the same thing over and over and expecting and different wrong, results. Yeah. yeah, and we're all guilty of it because there's been... T- like when Esther said that at the seminar, I thought, oh, my God, of course. You know, something so simple... Fortunately, in a lot of, of what she was preaching and, or not preaching, but she was teaching, discussing teaching, teaching yeah, yeah. And, and what you mentioned, I've been doing anyway because I've learned better from better people yeah, over yeah. time. However, leading up to that, the knowledge that I had in training was echoed from the knowledge of what other people had, which was time derived. Absolutely. So they only knew what they knew in that time, but when they added to their knowledge, then they were starting to improve. And when other people came out, in Australia, we've been fairly, like you said, we've been colonised and left away from the rest of the world. So in the early days when we started to... Yeah, but you can't blame the world. You were fucking convicts. You were like, it's a little bit... What was the, the old movie with Steve McQueen and... Um, um, the Great Escape. No, 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 no. Steve McQueen and um, um, Dustin Hoffman, where they had the island, uh, they used to put the convicts on the island just off the, the French off coast. The no, no, on the rock. It was um, Papillon or Papillon or something like this. They had an island. It was a prison. I don't forget the name. But basically, Australia is Britain's version of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's early Alcatraz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. So, Gerard, because I'm not sure how much time Glenn's got left. Yeah. Um, yeah. I suppose another thing the listeners that's important from to understand is you're an anatomy geek. Yeah. Uh, and you run an anatomy seminar all around the world, which I've seen years ago. It's changed now. I, I unfortunately couldn't get to see the whole lot this time around. Mm-hmm. But would you like to sort of explain a bit about that? And tell yeah, me yeah, that? absolutely. I mean, uh, anatomy is like my second hobby. I mean, when people try to explain, when I try to rather explain to people how I feel about anatomy, I often take a parallel with how some people feel about cars. So you have two types of people when it comes to cars. I mean, people that really like cars. You have the guy who every weekend he basically takes his his car, dissembles it, and it's all over his garage and he's cleaning and he's checking every piece and he basically puts it together again and he knows every little nut and bolt, every little cranny of the car. Oh, that's he, kn- he knows every element of the engine, how it works, uh, the combustion system, everything. And then you have the other guy who basically spends all his weekend spit and shine. And he's just basically shining the car. And he doesn't give a shit how the car works. He just cares that it looks great, or whatever the case. Yeah. Now, I, unfortunately, I'm a geek for both. I actually want the dog to look super, but I also want the dog to perform super. And when I was, when I was younger, and I was um, super passionate about winning, those of you that know me, understand I love to win I, it's, I'm addicted to winning I've always liked winning and when I was younger I used to try to understand when people would talk about movement and so forth the question kept coming into my head was okay 
we all want our dogs to move, but when it doesn't go quite so well, I wanted to know why, why. And I listened to so many people talking about anatomy and it never made sense to me. So I started to do self, self-observation and a lot of self-study. And over the years I've read, I've went to countless seminars. I still go to seminars myself today, listening to other people, reading books and so forth. And then I start seminar because of my hobby, local clubs started asking me, could you do a little talk on movement? And I started back in the day when we had the little overhead projector and I had sketches of dogs and put the sketches oh, the up. film, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, little, the little, like you put it and it, it kind of mirrors the reflections onto the wall and the prison <laughs> And I was doing this back in the day. That and, is old school. Yeah, yeah, showing little uh, uh, sketches that I was literally tearing out books, stealing from other authors and saying, if you look at this and so forth. And then I started noticing after a while that I started taking samples from books and doing it with local clubs, prisming it with this um, overhead projector, putting it onto the wall and explaining to the class how wrong the author was, which sounds, but I wasn't actually naming the author saying, this is a, a common misunderstanding when it came to this. And I started looking into it more and more. Now we're having an anatomy seminar today that has cost me crazy money to build it because the graphics are really high-end graphics. We have dogs moving with the full skeleton inside the body so we can see exactly what's happening and how it affects. But I always try to do a crossover in the seminars explaining, for example, uh, understanding anatomy will help you in your breeding program. Understanding anatomy and properly built dogs will help you if you're interested in working or performance dogs. Understanding anatomy will definitely 1 million percent help you when it comes to your handling because then you're going to know what you need to present. But for me, the, uh, I have some ideas that I would like to think, um, or rather teaching techniques when it comes to anatomy that I'd like to believe are definitely original. But for me, more than anything else, I never make a statement or point out something without giving you a relevant factual idea behind the idea. Mm. When it comes to angulation, when it comes to movement, when it comes to carriage, uh, my big thing is carriage. I think that... Um, Every breed should move typical to itself and should have a typical carriage. Neville kept thinking I was saying, what did yeah, you think of it? Yeah, those that don't understand the Irish accent, he's talking carriage, not courage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, happened, it happened to me in the States, actually. I had a big show in the States and they wanted me to do the whole show on the microphone. And I was saying, blah, blah. And I, said, and I was saying, medium carriage, reach and drive. And then dog after dog. And after about 40 dogs, uh, I could see the show manager hovering around and and you always get this subtle cue that maybe something is not quite right, you know. So I put my hand over the mic and, and I whispered over and I said, is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is super cool. I said, people are really happy with the explanations of what they said. It's good. Um, and I said, but, because I knew it was the boy. You know, I said, but. He says, yeah. Um, there's a few people just curious as to how you can understand the courage of the dog <laughs> when you look at it moving. And I said, no, I didn't say courage. I said carriage. And suddenly she takes the mic off. She tells the whole audience, he means carriage. <laughs> and then everybody was going, oh, my God, that's what he means. All the critiques had to be reworded just in that section. But, but I'm a bit... I, I, think, uh, I think the guys at the show were really amused with the way you say bite. Or you say boit. Boit, yeah, boit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And think, yeah. yeah. But I, I tell people that uh, I don't really speak like that. It's just that the Irish accent is so charming. <laughs> <laughs> I actually say the whole thing is a fake. Actually, it's Scandinavian, my Irish second name. I've adopted it. 
because I know how popular the Irish are. That's the way it is. Do you yeah. speak Swedish? Yeah, I do speak Swedish, actually. I won't say perfectly, but I do speak Swedish. But enough to get by. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can have a conversation. You've, uh, you've married a Swedish lady. Yeah, I have. My beautiful wife, actually. Yeah. La? Yeah. No, not La. Everybody, you see, the thing is, her name is spelled I-A. But every time you write someone's name, you start with a capital letter. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so the like capital letter looks like an L. Okay. So then it's, it's uh, so people think it's La, or her name is is oi a so we would say oya but the the letter oi in swedish is pronounced like the english letter e so her name is ia ia to understand okay. so ia is her name yeah yeah so everywhere we go we have to say we have the same problem with especially english speaking countries people are like uh, ask your wife la if she wants something i'm like who <laughs> la. <laughs> la 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 yeah yeah, yeah. But, uh, but anyway on the anatomy for me, if you want to understand a good breeding program, if you want to understand, if you want to be active in dogs in any sense, you have to understand the principles of how they are built and how they are different. One of my disagreements with the all-breed show world is that we have a tendency to promote and push forward what I call generic show movement, where everything kind of looks the same. And this has, this has derived from our, our lust to, to do well in the groups and where everything should be flashy, high head carriage, uh, elevated movement, a lot of spring in the step and so forth, which suits very well some breeds. It's very close to their own generic movement, such as poodles and so forth. But in, in breeds that should have an enduring gait, breeds that should have, especially working breeds, they should carry their head well in front of their body, almost on the level of the top line, because they should move to the quarters. And I go into a lot of detail explaining how that is, but I take a lot of parallels from life and and to be honest, the one thing I could promise with my anatomy seminar, a lot of people are afraid of anatomy because they think the bloody subject is so heavy. But I spend a great deal of time making it entertaining as well because teaching without laughter and entertainment is just it's just factual garbage yeah. after a while, you know. So. I, that, and that's one thing I... Well, another thing that I've heard favourably about you from people is that you're a very good educator that you convey your message very well with it and make it lighthearted and entertaining. Even somebody who knew you were coming on the show today said to me, oh, this is going to be a great podcast because Gerard's a, a very funny guy and, uh, and very knowledgeable. And that's been echoed in quite a lot of circles. So yeah, yeah. You've, you obviously have studied your topic and, and know your topic very well to be uh, conveyed that way. Yeah, well, I mean... I was asked, not so long ago, I did some uh, interviews for a dog magazine and they, they said, so you're a dog trainer. And then I paused for a second and thought a little bit about it and I realised, maybe not. They were like, what do you mean? I've come to realise I'm a people trainer. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually spending less and less time training dogs and more and more time coaching and motivating owners to train their own dogs. Yeah, you're an educator. Yeah, an educator in that yeah. sense. And... Um, and what is quite ironic about the whole thing, I left school at 14. I'm chronic, chronically dyslexic. I've always been dyslexic. I'm still the worst speller on earth. I mean, if I was writing a text, even the word program gets mixed up for God's sake. It's that bad, you know? <laughs> and I, yeah, no, it does. Even, even Windows Word is like, I think the computer's basically saying, Jerry, no fucking idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but uh, uh, I spell atrociously and I still do, but I don't have a hang-up about it anymore. And in school... I hated school. I went to a parochial school. I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you did have, like Christian Brothers schools over yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I went to a Christian Brothers school. But I was like one of the last generations where corporal punishment was still tolerated in Ireland. 
And when I would get spellings wrong, when I would get when I would get things wrong, I would actually get caned for it. Yeah, like caned for it. Yeah, that still happens when I was at school. That's yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to believe when you look back on it, you realize what the hell was society thinking of? You know, I mean, we're we're sitting here basically talking about how positive dog training. I mean, it's not that long ago we were fucking beating the shit out of kids. It's not that long ago, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think? Even left-handed people were caned or hit and told to put the pen in their right hand. Absolutely. No, left-handed. Well, left-handedness was seen yeah. as witchcraft. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it is crazy, but I went to a broken school and I got caned. And, and then I got to a point I was about 14 and I basically had enough because I didn't see an ending to it. They had convinced me I was stupid, maybe you were partially right, but they convinced me I was stupid. <laughs> because one of the things that they, their idea to motivate me was to consistently tell me how useless I was. You're useless. I remember my teacher used to say, O'Shea, you're a waste of space. And that was his quote for me all the time. I'm, when I was 18, I still believed, I still believed that. Until yeah, one day I went, to an, I went to an open university Trinity College and I, and I listened to a lecture I shouldn't have even been there I basically smuggled myself in and I'm sitting there with all these upper class uh, students and, and I was just sitting there listening and and it was about alternative thinking and it really fascinated me and it got me and when the guy started describing about which was a very strange thing for me was dyslexia but he didn't just talk about dyslexia because you can remember when we were kids many people didn't know what dyslexia was he spoke about dyslexia, but on top of that, he started speaking about the possible benefits to dyslexia. In other words, they say a lot of dyslexic people have a tendency to approach a problem from another direction, if you understand. Mm. They're always finding alternative routes. So culture is moving from left to right. Maybe dyslexic people will choose to approach the problem from right to left yeah, and exactly. so forth. And, and, and I have found that this has benefited me without really realizing from the beginning that almost everything I do, I'm looking for an untraditional way in to understand it. Mm. Because the, the traditional way is already well documented, if you get my point. Yeah. No, no matter what it is. So I'm looking for an alternative way in. And this has helped me to come up with many original ideas in the subjects that I'm passionate about. Whether it be anatomy, whether it be show dog training, whether it be performance enhancement, whether it be and so forth. And it's, yeah, it's... The foundation was my handicap, which is quite ironic, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, I think we could talk forever because you're a very fascinating guy, but uh, at some stage we're going to have to wrap it up, so we might do that now. But, Gerard, it's been an absolute honour and a privilege getting you over here. And It's been my pleasure. It's been great being here. Thank you very much. Thank you to Neville. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Neville, um, I said to you today, I... You said to me that sometimes you're losing a little bit of heart if you continuing the show game and that. But what I see in you is a great competitor. You see a great competitor. And one of the things I, I actually mentioned once or twice over the weekend, <laughs> that your dogs, your dogs are performing their asses off and you're performing your ass off. And, uh, and I hope you don't give it up because I really think that the Rockfeller, if I could just give a shout out to the Rockfeller people, the Rockfeller people need people who are interested in both the physical, mental, and beauty aspect, because I'm a big believer in the complete dog. Picking one direction is way too easy for me. Yeah, I want that complete package. I want, I want, um, like when I always think of when Robert Redford 
said he was going to become a director. Nobody believed he could be a good director because he was too good looking. And in reality, he was, yeah, because he was just, he was categorized as just a beautiful man. Yeah. Well, he has proven that. He is more than that. And in, in my breed, I want us to have beauty, functionality, and mentality, both for the working field and for a modern society. And I know that you think the same way, so please don't give it up, because I think you, uh, people like you have a big contribution, especially in Australia. Here. I, mean, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, Neville's got a lot to offer. He's probably full of self-doubt when he doesn't need to be. But the problem with, with Nevy, he put so much heart and soul into it. And, You're getting um, a bit personal there with Nevy now. pronounce his name. He's Neville. Neville. Um, he, <laughs> like you're looking for an alternative route. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's actually a goal around. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, go. go he, no, look, he's, he's a good man. He's given a lot of his life to the club. And the dog world can be, you, you know it, Ruthless. It can be ruthless. And anybody who's been around for any time in the dog world, I mean, I've had to have a break from it before because it just strips your soul sometimes. Yeah. It really cuts you back. And it's it's not the dogs. The dogs are brilliant all the time. The dogs maintain their own glory the whole way through. It's just it's just people's behaviour. Mm-hmm. And But that's life, you know, and I think sometimes I've, I've had a rest from it. I've gone into recluse and I've dumped it. And, you know, I can see Neville's getting to that bit of a burnout stage where he's given a lot. But, I mean, he's also in a field where there's a lot of bickering and arguing and um, and no progress over yeah. the stupidest things. You know, and they often say that a camel is the committee's idea of what a horse should look like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's unfortunately what they do. They spend so much time arguing and so little time progressing, that it takes so long to get some of the most simple things done. And that's what burns people like Neb out. Well, well do you remember Billy Connolly used to say this? Though? He used to say, if you ever come across a really stupid fucking idea, it was a committee that made that decision. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, I love Connolly and I know Australians love Connolly. I mean, I think the man was an absolute genius. But in reality, you know, you might get a letter in your post and this is not related to dogs, of course. This is related to everything. So you get a letter in your post and you look in and the letter is about they're going to change the local bypass and you're looking at something and you see the plans with that. Thinking, that can never work. What are they going to do? No, I I promise you, it was a really bad idea. It was a fucking committee that made that idea. And I, and I always think, how did it work? It worked a little bit like this. Neville comes in with a great idea, really original idea. Jer comes in with another great idea. And then we compromise. And we come up with a third idea when we convince half the committee of a piece of his idea and a piece of my idea. When we're a third idea that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. And that is often uh, committees in general. I won't say dog show committees, I mean committees Just in committee, general. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And politics. Yeah, and politics. But it's, yeah. And yet at the same time, we want to believe in democracy. We want people to... But do you not think in the dog world we have too many people who are constantly searching for the crack, the... The reason not to go forward, the reason not to give it a go. 100%. Or you get this a little bit, but we've always done it this way. <laughs> what the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's because your committee is 50 fucking 100 years old. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's very difficult. And you know what I think it's hard in dogs? Dogs is very personal hobby to many people. Yes. And, and this, that's where people have made their identity from. Exactly. Dogs. Very, yeah. very much so. Mm-hmm. And, it's, uh, and I think also what ends up happening is that people have... Um, 
it's not easy if you're being in a game that is so personal as dogs and so passionate as dog people are about, no matter which one of their hobbies they're, they're, they're involved in, they're very passionate because it becomes a lifestyle change. It's not only put your boots under the stairs, take them out next week, you play a little bit of football, but it, it's a lifestyle change. And imagine having this lifestyle for 30 years and then somebody comes along and suggests a better way to do it mm. or maybe a different way to do it. It's not easy for people to actually tell themselves, oh my God, maybe I could have done this better. So people take it as a personal insult. That's that cognitive distance. Whatever they do. Whatever they do. And it's not easy for people. Um, that's why I try to jump out of the subject quite a lot. Yes. Because people are too attached to the subject and make my, if you like to say, Make my point in a totally different package, you know. But listen, very uh, well said. Very yeah. well said. Wise uh, words. Yeah, I really appreciate Neville. As I said, dropped me over. I'm yeah. very happy. I appreciate for being on the podcast. It's been super. And um, good luck, guys. Good luck to Dogs Australia. That's what I say. Okay. Thank you very much, Gerard. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you've enjoyed the show, please like and share us. You can find us on Facebook. If you've got any issues with the show, you can contact us and you tell us what the issue is, but uh, you shouldn't do because it's a wonderful show, as you all know. <laughs> so once again, thank you to our good friend, Mr. Gerard O'Shea, and thanks to Neville for bringing him here and obviously going to take him all the way back home again. It's been great having him here, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next show. Cue the music. <laughs>